Hello there, Lucky Paper Radio listeners. This is Andy, no Anthony, because he and I forgot to mention on this episode of the podcast that we have two little calls to action for you. First, our surveys for Strixhaven and Commander 2021 are officially out, and they'll only be up for the next week or so. So, if you're testing cards in any of your cubes from these sets, please check out the show notes or go to luckypaper.co and complete our surveys to tell us what cards you're testing and what you think about them. We use this information in our community-informed set review articles that go up on our website, and you can check out the past history of that all the way back to Throne of Eldraine. And it also tells us what you want us to talk about on the set review episode of the podcast, which will be coming up in the next couple of weeks. And to that point, our second call to action, if you have a hot take from Strixhaven or Commander 2021, Record a little voice memo, pull out your phone, open your voice memo app, record, you know, a minute, 30 seconds, whatever your hot take is, and email it to mail at luckypaper.co, and we might use your hot take in the episode next week. We love having extra voices in the episodes. I think it worked out great for call time, so please, if you got something you want to say, send it in and let your voice be heard. All right, on to the episode. school and joined a gang. That's right, I became a blood artist. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony Bloop Aficionado Maddox. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Andy. How's it going? Do you want to share the bloop with people? I hadn't thought about that in years until you ju- until you mentioned it in our little pre-record warm-up. Can you, can you be an aficionado for a thing that there is only one of? Yeah, totally. Okay. I mean, the bloop is just, uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It, it was It was a big... <laughs> It's Bloop. not exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> if you, it's like it's pretty evident from the name what the bloop is. I mean, come it was on, it's just a big bloop. Uh, what it was was there's a well, we have no idea what it was, which is the fun part. There's a lot of recording equipment in the ocean for all kinds of different reasons that are doing important science. And one day, I have no idea when, there was a weird sound recorded all over the world throughout the whole globe's oceans. And it was a big bloop. And to this day, no one knows what the bloop was. It kind of sounds like, so it, it actually, I think it was a pretty long sound. It's at least a couple minutes. But if you speed it up, it does, it just sounds like a big sort of bubble rising up. But some huge slow bubble somewhere in the ocean that could be heard the globe over. It was recorded in 1997 by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. By 2012, earlier speculation of the sound... Oh, so it turns out, as of 2012, NOAA has described the sound as being consistent. Wait, no spoilers. Did they figure it out? Mm, Kind of. It's not incredibly decisive. Noah considers the sound to be consistent with noises generated via non-tectonic cryoseisms cryoseisms? originating from glacial movements such as ice calving or through seabed gouging by ice. But yeah, it was basically a super... I'll, I'll, I'll put a clip of the bloop in here. It was basically... <laughs> put the entire bloop in here in real time. <laughs> but yeah, it's basically, you know, in real time, it just kind of sounds like a really hyper low-pitched... But if you speed it up, it's just bloop basically and it was heard on some combination of like many different oceanic microphone arrays such that it was obviously very very loud because it was heard all over the world so it seems like you think about the bloop more often than i do 
I'd say at least once a year. That's a pretty good rate. I was very grateful when you brought the bloop into my life. And there's many weird things that you, you brought into my life <laughs> along with the bloop. And this, this, this week's episode, Anthony. Really? Yeah, sure. You're always a source of interesting tidbits. And, and this week's episode is actually going to be a little bit about our origins, Anthony. We're going to talk a little bit about our origin story, how Anthony and I met, which was, spoiler alert, at art school. I thought it would be very interesting for us to talk about what critical discourse means to us. Because to me, art school was very foundational to who I am today as an adult and how I think about the world and how I move through the world. And I, I think there's a lot to be learned from art school uh, in any kind of talking about <laughs> so magic. So just go do that. Yeah, well, I, I, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk in more detail. But basically, we are going to be connecting, drawing a through line from art school to magic, the kind of magic that Anthony and I play and love the most today. So stay tuned to see how we thread that needle. But first, we have to do a pack one, pick one from a listener-submitted cube. This week, our cube comes to us from listener Jean and Anthony. <laughs> Jean emailed and said, Hey, you know, here's my name, here's my cube, but just call me John, because I don't want you to try and pronounce my French name. I'm sure you're going to screw it up. I feel like they didn't give me too much credit. Is Jean that hard for many Americans to say, you think? I mean, you say that it's so easy, but then um, probably you did it wrong. I probably did it wrong, but I can't, believe, I can't imagine I did it as wrong as saying John would be. Anyway, listener Jean or John. Anyway, what we can learn from this is that if you request to be called a certain thing, Andy might not listen. His name is right in the email. <laughs> we'll find out if I've offended listener, listener, listener. Sean. Perhaps, perhaps it's pronounced Gene. <laughs> uh, what did he find? He said he wanted to tell us in person. Don't get up! I just defined the supplies because I'm a private detective. Gene Parmesan, how are you doing? Ah, Gene! Oh, Gene! Isn't he the best? Gene was far from the best. Very impressive. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh god we'll find out if i've profoundly offended listener listener jean listener jean is a little bit hard to say anyway this cube is a fast multiplayer cube so i think this email is one of our, our oldest sent in lists i apologize to listener jean for getting to it so late but it is a, a multiplayer race that's designed to be quite quick with games starting with 20 life and just very aggressive strategies. Not so dissimilar, Anthony, from your take on multiplayer we talked about many months ago on Lucky Paper Radio. We're going to do something a little bit different just because the draft format that is primarily used for this cube, according to the description, it's a primarily drafted with three to four players. And with four players, it is intended to be drafted in seven packs of 15 cards, but seven packs instead of three, uh, with a pick one, burn one approach. So... Anthony, I'm going to read the pack, but then we're going to ask you not just for your pick from the pack, but for what card you're going to burn from the pack. The pack is Cut to Ribbons, Counterspell, Precursor Golem, Showdown of the Skulls, Ponder, Talisman of Progress, Fauna Shaman, The Acroan War, Scuttling Doom Engine, Murderous Rider, Abraid, Gataxian Probe, Deep Forest Hermit, Champion of Wits, and Unearth. Multiplayer, Anthony, a four-player free-for-all. you got to pick one, burn one. What are you looking at out of this pack? Multiplayer is just such a different game from one-on-one -on -one magic. It I, truly I really is. can't understate that. Like People talk a lot about building commander cubes or how much they like commander versus other formats. And I think that we get caught up a lot in the details of, like, well, what's your starting life total? What do you have the commander of the command zone? 
And I think just the fact that you're playing multiplayer actually has such a big effect compared to all of those. And even just like if I've had the rare occasion I've played my own cute multiplayer, it's like, wow, I completely want to evaluate these cards differently. So all that's to say, I'm looking at this pack and I'm trying to shift my mindset. It's been a while since I've played multiplayer magic, to be honest. So I'm looking for cards that are not just, you know, one for one interaction, one for one removal, but that can really interact with the whole board state. I'm also really open to the idea of this cube where we're trying to be a little bit more aggressive, have some fast tempo interactive games. And I think where that leads me is I really want to take Talisman of Progress because I just know how powerful ramp can be. But I also know that doesn't really feel totally in the spirit of this cube. So I'm actually looking at Showdown of the Scalds and the Akron War. I think especially the Akron War is just a really underrated card, which just has a huge impact on the game. Uh, and Showdown of the Scalds just generates a tremendous amount of card advantage and board presence at the same time, which feels very powerful, but also in the spirit of what's happening here. And to be honest, I think that in multiplayer, people are less excited about Boros, so that's kind of the theme of the magic that I've been playing this week is I'm just falling into Boros a lot. Yeah, I think your points about multiplayer are very relevant. I do want to read these cards so people know what they do. Showdown of the Scalds is a Boros saga, as Anthony intimated. It is two red and a white for... A saga, chapter one, exile the top four cards of your library until end of your next turn you may play those cards. So an impulsive draw four, basically. And then chapters two and three are whenever you cast a spell this turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. I agree, very high ceiling on that for sure, and definitely reads differently in the context of multiplayer magic. The Akroan War, also for mana value, but it is just three in a red. Chapter one, gain control of target creature for as long as the Akroan War remains on the battlefield, which will be three turns, barring any shenanigans with chapter counters. Chapter two, until your next turn, creatures your opponents control attack each combat if able. Chapter three, each tapped creature deals damage to itself equal to its power. You get to steal a creature, you get to force stuff to attack, then you get to kill some subset of things. Now, keep in mind, everything will have been forced to attack on the turn prior to this chapter three going off so presumably everything that was forced to attack without vigilance will be able to punch itself and possibly kill a lot of things that is also i think a very reasonable consideration i do think it's worth mentioning the cards that would normally jump out at me were this a one-on-one cube and there i agree something like talisman of progress ponder counterspell murderous rider cataxian probe all cards that are jumping out at me just in terms of good rate for the effect, but I agree with you completely. Totally. I don't uh, want one-for-one removal in a multiplayer environment. I, I read it much lower, I should say, because if I counter someone else's spell, the p- people that really won in that interaction are the two players that did not have their spell countered and did not spend a counter spell. Same goes for a removal spell. So I'm kind of lower on that. I do think Talisman of Progress is a, a pretty respectable pick because it's pretty open and does provide some ramp. I, I want to specifically call out the cards that do something different in multiplayer, because most of these cards behave exactly the same in single player as they do in multiplayer. The only two I'm seeing, unless I'm missing anything, are the Akron War, as you mentioned, only because you have multiple opponents, and so chapter two there normally says your opponent must attack you with all their creatures, but here very likely could just make your opponent send their creatures at each other and not necessarily you, which I think reads differently, which is relevant. The other card that is a little bit different in this context is Cut to Ribbons. Uh, this is uh, one of the Aftermath cards from Amonkhet. Cut is just one on a red sorcery to deal four damage to target creature. Ribbons is the relevant thing here, though. It's X black black to make each opponent lose X life. And so here, that obviously scales up to each opponent rather than just a single opponent. 
That said, I'm not particularly high on it because I do think it's a gold card. I also really don't want sorcery speed one-for-one one removal, which is what cut is because of the nature of multiplayer magic. So, gosh, Anthony, I don't know. I, I think you've sold me on the Acroan War. It is something that can effectively function as a board wipe and interact with the entire board, which I do think is relevant. And I'm really curious to see how that second chapter is going to work in multiplayer magic. I would be a little worried that on account of me being the one playing the Acroan War and threatening to kill a lot of creatures with the third chapter, that that might mean all my opponents are going to point that second chapter at me. But if they don't, it could be quite valuable. And Talisman of Progress is the other card I'm looking at. So those are really the two that I think jump out at me. At the end of the day, what is your actual pick and cut, Anthony? Your pick and burn. So for pick, I think I think I do like the Acroan War. The more we talk about it, I'm not sure if it's the correct pick from a power level perspective, but also multiplayer magic tends to be a little bit self-balancing as well, so I feel a little bit more flexible going into it. As far as burn, I'm really not so interested, to be honest, in burn drafting. It's this like weird extra meta level of trying to add this kind of mystery to the draft that I don't necessarily... I just don't know how to optimize. So as a player, I'm not really excited about it yet. I wonder if the, the impetus for doing that in this particular cube is that you want to sort of add some variation where you don't want to have these long multiplayer games that are consistently dominated by the same cards. So it's sort of an opportunity for players to try and, you know, remove particular cards that they don't enjoy playing with. So you get a little bit more variation in the in from game to game. But as a player, I'm also trying to optimize that and think, well, what am I actually doing by burning a card? And I think that the most powerful thing I can do is specifically in, in the beginning of a draft, in the first couple picks, is just burning another card in that color that I'm picking, which means I'm removing a card I could potentially wheel, but means I can really get paid off later in the draft if I can sort of stake my claim. So I think that I'm probably going to cut either Showdown or a braid. I like that logic. I have similar feelings about burn drafting. It is not my favorite way to draft. I think it's the kind of thing that works in theory... If you assume that everybody is, you know, kind of burning in good faith, like you would expect that the the point of a burn draft is to kind of emulate another player being there, right? And so I think if you are just kind of burning in like good faith, you would just burn the next best card out of the pack, right? Regardless of what color it was, you just, you know, take that card out, assume that it's a really powerful card that the person that's drafting in between might might take. But that's not how games work, right? Nobody is is trying to do anything in good faith. And I agree completely. My strategy in most burn drafts is to, when I've found my lane, whether that's the first pick, second pick, third pick, fourth pick, whenever I think I'm pretty confident what my lane is, I will usually spend the first half or maybe two-thirds of the draft just aggressively burning my own cards in my own color to basically say, everyone else get out of my lane completely, which has two benefits. As you intimated, it has the benefit of later in the draft, I will get past those cards because nobody else is going to be taking them uh, because I've so so committed to staking out my lane. But perhaps more importantly, it also puts your opponents in a, a narrower subset of colors. So what I then start doing is start burning everything else in that last half or last right. third of the draft and basically say, I know you're not playing red now, so I'll just pass you all the good red cards. There's no way you can play them. And I'm just going to burn all the other good cards and basically keep you from wheeling anything. And then... We get into this game theory situation where, like, if my opponents are also trying to take an, an optimal strategy and do the same thing I'm doing, now you have this, like, I think very frustrating meta thing where you're both just trying to figure out if the other person is burning a color to try and put you off of it and, like, play this weird game. I, I don't think it really holds up to 
optimization the way that really competitively minded players would optimize it. That said, I mean, I'll push, I'll push back and say, I don't think there's really an expectation that people are drafting it in good faith, as you say, like, and trying to pretend like, oh, I'm just an invisible extra drafter sitting in between us. I, I think that if I did a lot of burn drafting, like if this was, if this was the weekly game that we played, learning how to actually optimize that could become fun. But as it is taking my experience of a, a draft of eight people and sort of saying, well, let's jam it down to four people and do a, a, a pick one, burn one. It just feels like every draft is a train wreck because people are sort of using that that burn pick in such different ways that it adds this like really complicated level. So I, I think that it could be fun if you actually did learn how to optimize it and everybody was playing on the same page in terms of playing that metagame. Yeah, that that's true. It could be. I, I also think it works on the other end of the spectrum. If everyone is like not <laughs> not so competitively minded about it and just like... I'll take my pick very seriously, and then I'll burn a good card. You know, I won't take too hard about it. I'll just burn it. I'll get a card out of the pack. Then I think it can kind of work, too. I think it works at that level, too. But anything, sure, anywhere if people between, are just like, well, I want to take this red card, but I really hate playing its counterspell. I'll just burn right. that counterspell. Sure. Anywhere in between, though, where you have some players that are like, ooh, I'm going to really get in here and try and throw a wrench into this and just optimize it at all costs, and other players that are just doing whatever they want, it, I think it does get a little bit messy. So you're taking a Chrome War, burning a Braid. I think I'll, I think I'll actually burn Showdown. Okay, fair. I think I think a braid is is powered down enough in a multiplayer environment. It's it's less of a signal. Yeah, I was gonna say that I'm I'm also gonna take the Acrome War. I think you kind of talked me into it. I wasn't there initially when I saw the pack, but your argument was quite quite compelling. I'm just gonna burn Talisman though because I don't think any of these other red cards are appealing enough for somebody to commit to them, given the nature of multiplayer magic. I, th- I think the next highest picks in this pack are probably still Murderous Rider, a Champion of Wits, a Deep Forest Hermit probably still a ponder, a talisman. And so I feel like taking talisman out at this point is just like, here's a good card no one else can have. And then I'm going to see where this pack goes. And, you know, absent any other metagaming, uh, my strategy is going to be once I've staked out a claim, which I might not be committed to red yet. It depends what the next couple packs see. But once I've staked out something, I'm going to be aggressively burning my own color until I can uh, stake it out pretty pretty strongly. Can we dwell just a little bit on the Akron War I think there's so many of this, so many aspects of this card that are so interesting. I, and as far as gameplay, I have pretty mixed feelings about it. It's incredibly, incredibly swingy in two-player matches where sometimes it'll just do nothing, and a lot of times your opponent plays it, and you're just like, "Well, I don't really have any good choices." But I love, love, love the top-down design here. Of you know, it, it's the Trojan War. Someone is going to steal something from you, and that's going to provoke you into starting a war, and then. Like all wars, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot and end up doing a lot of damage to yourself. Yeah, very I also poetic. love, love the illustration on this. If you look carefully, I'm pretty sure that's not an illustration at all. This is an actual tapestry, and this threads at the bottom is just a photograph of the loom the tapestry is on. I believe that's true as well. I, th- I remember when these cards were spoiled, there was a lot of physical media that was used to actually make yeah. the art in the... Uh, like, I think the showdown of the Skulls is an actual carving, if I remember correctly. Have you watched... PBDDR's YouTube videos that I have mentioned on the show in the past. I've seen a couple. I've never seen him play in a Crone War, if that's what you're winding up Well, to. there is a, there's a video. It's one of his more recent ones. There's a video where he talks through a specific turn that was presented to him by somebody that hired him to do coaching. So he offers coaching services if you want to get better at magic. You can get a private session with Paulo Vitor Domino Rosa to 
get better at magic. And in this coaching session... How much, how much does that cost? Maybe we should I, get him to come on and help us with this pack one, pick one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. can, can our private coaching session be an episode of our podcast? I'm not sure. Maybe that'd be interesting to ask just, him. Just 15 minutes. <laughs> just tell us what to take for a multiplayer cube draft. That, that's what will finally cause us to start our Patreon. Start giving us money so we can hire pros to come on the podcast and actually tell us how magic works. Anyway, the... Uh, this is a, a single, like, what's the play scenario that was presented to him by one of his coaching students, and it involved a somewhat complicated board state in standard. The opponent was playing this deck that uh, was an adventure deck. I think it was, I think it was an adventure deck mirror, uh, maybe a gruel aggro deck versus an adventure deck. And he kind of talks through all of the sort of potential lines of play, all of their pros and cons, and the the player that is you're making the decision for has an Acro and War in hand. And at the end of this video, to spoil spoilers, I think everyone should watch this video. This is a real spoiler alert. <laughs> I think you should go watch this video and not listen to me spoil it right now, except for you, Anthony. You have no choice. You had your chance to watch YouTube videos. I've been recommending them for weeks. But spoiler alert, the turns out the the best line to take was to play the Acro in War and not take the opponent's Lovestruck Beast or some other big target they had, but they actually just had a little giant killer sitting there in play. Paul even says himself that even as a pro, you know, very seasoned Magic player, one of the best in all time, he didn't see this line initially. Like, he kind of ruled it out because when he looked at the Akroan War and thought, well, if I'm playing the Akroan War, I'm taking the best thing I can take, and that was this Lovestruck Beast. And it turns out that taking Lovestruck Beast because of the rest of the board state is actually not the right thing to do, and the right thing to do is take this dinky little giant killer. So I think this is actually the right play, and this is the reason that I even made this video to begin with, because it's a very unintuitive play, because we have ingrained in our minds then you should play the Aircrow War and still the bigger creature, right? It makes sense. It's the bigger creature, right? It's a 5-5 five, five versus a 1-2. Uh, you know, the reason you bring in Aircrow War is not to steal a 1-2, because there are a lot of ways you can kill a 1-2, right? You have Frostbite, you have Bunkcrusher Giant, you have the Scorching Dragon Fairy if you want. The reason this card is even in your sideboard and the reason you're bringing it in is to steal 5-5s, five right? Because the 5-5 five, five is a card that uh, you can't kill with Born. It's it's very hard to kill with Born. It's a card that you can't attack through because it blocks everything. And it's a card that just kills you. So it is very unintuitive to steal a 1-2 creature instead of a 5-5 creature. But you have to understand that in this scenario, it actually accomplishes everything that you want. People tend to like cards that steal their opponent's stuff. And I think it's partially because it's... Really? I mean, don't, don't you think that's true? I, I'm not making that up. People love Gaunt. People love cards where they like to like steal something from their opponent, I feel like. they have People have strong emotional reactions to cards like that. Have you, have you observed this? Definitely. Oh, totally. I mean, I know players, when I had a Gaunti Lord of Luxury EDH deck that was very much built around that theme, some players would just be like, no, I'm not, sorry, like, <laughs> I'll come back next round when you're playing a different deck. People do have, <laughs> that's true, some people do have a very strong opinion against it as well, but I, I think part of what makes it interesting to people is that, you know, the Akroan War does different stuff depending on what's in play. You know, I, I talked last week on the show about how I don't think that <laughs> boring and interesting are great terms to describe cards, but... Uh, certainly the Akron War is not going to be boring because every time you play it, it's going to do something totally different, right? And so I think that people are drawn to that that aspect of it. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said about the card. I think it has very swingy potential. I, it, it's weird because it does a, a odd thing for red. Like, it combines things that red always gets to do with the combination of them all, makes for a very odd effect that I don't know what kind of deck to slot it into. Yeah, I mean, it's just a multiplayer good card deck. It's seeing play in standard. I think it's also just a fine aggro card, right? You get to take really? one of your opponent's things, force them to attack you, which you likely don't care about, and then you're basically just saying all those creatures can't block next turn, and then you get to swing in, I guess? 
I can actually claim to uh, to have had almost exactly the same level up. Where you're, you're totally right. Your instinct is, I'm casting a steel card. I'm gonna take your best thing. And really, when you start thinking about it, you're like, okay, I actually want to make sure all of your creatures will end up destroying themselves. And so, taking a thing that is higher toughness than power that won't kill itself, but is able to block your creatures that are forced to attack uh, is definitely a situation I've been in. And that's a very, uh, honestly, a very clever feeling moment when you're like, I remember this so specifically, I cast this card and my opponent, they reach towards their their five drop or whatever because they're like, yeah, of course you're going to steal the biggest thing. And I'm like, no, I'm going to take that little guy over there. And then they give it to me a little bit skeptical and then pass the turn and then realize what's happening, that they're actually going to lose everything. And that's where I kind of like these cards where they give you those level up moments, but it's it's really a swingy card. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the like main mode of it is just a very slow <laughs> two target creatures your opponents control fight each other, right? Like you you take one and then you get to choose which of their creatures attacking you want to block with it. And like that's a really strong card, making two creatures fight each other. All right, I'm putting this on my list for the rare module for my next cube design. Uh, how's that coming along, by the way? Slowly. I have to work on my first cube. Yeah, yeah I feel projects. like I feel like cube design comes in fits and spurts for me. It's like I'll get interested in something and then I'll kind of shelve it for a while, but then I'll come back because I get struck by inspiration and uh, and dive into it again. It's not a world with rabbit holes; it is a world of rabbit holes. True enough. That's a great segue, but we got to close out this segment first. Thank you, listener Jean, for sending in your fast multiplayer cube. If you want to have your cube drafted on Lucky Paper Radio. Just send us a link with your name and pronouns to mail at luckypaper.co. And if you think your name's hard to pronounce, give me something phonetic. Let me do my best. I want you to be recognized by your real God-given name, people. I don't want to have to Americanize it. I hope I didn't screw up John's name. You and I met freshman year at art school. I, I bet very few listeners to this podcast know this about us because why would they? They don't know they don't know us at all. But but that's how we met. Correct. I remember the day. It was <laughs> Do you remember the day? Sunny. Do you do you remember the, the first conversation we had or one of the first conversations we had? Uh I don't think it puts me in a very favorable light. I think I was probably confused and grumpy <laughs> and adjusting to a very different uh, life experience. <laughs> I remember an early one. I don't think it puts you in a bad light, but I remember at the time your portfolio was full of these very intricate, detailed mandala drawings you would make. So these very complicated, symmetrical, ornate drawings that you would create. And I was interested in let's, this. Let's was, call them what they are. They were extremely quandrics. They, they were they were big quandrics energy, no doubt. And, you know, I was new to art school, trying to make friends. And I had seen this work and thought it was cool. We had some classes together. And in the first couple of weeks of school, I kind of approached you and was like, hey, dude, like, what, nice mandalas. What are those all about? And you were like... I don't know, just like drawing them. Like we had this very awkward exchange <laughs> where I was like, I like this thing you do. Why do you do it? And you were like, I don't know. And then we just, and that was, that was the end of it. But uh, who knew that would spark a lifelong friendship, that, that small interaction about your mandalas. And unfortunately, I still don't have a better answer for you. Yeah, I mean, it was fun to do. You, uh, you got really good at using Adobe Illustrator's various transform and reflect tools and you could, you had a really great workflow for them. So it was cool. And um, like I said in the intro, Art school, I mean, I think college is a formational time for a lot of people that go to college. It, it, it's, it's often a time in your life where a lot of things change and your perspectives and worldview are altered. And that was very true for me, certainly. And to me, art school it really captures a lot of the things that I like about magic, which might sound weird to people. I thought we should just maybe, Anthony, explain kind of what art school is, because... 
you know, for people that haven't gone, I think art school has this weird air of of strangeness and like an alien world. Like art school's depiction in popular media, which is not entirely unfair, is is always a little bit mysterious. So, how would you describe the experience of going to art school to somebody that did not go to art school? I mean, that's that's really tough for me to explain because in the same way that a fish has no concept of water, I've never really seen what not art school is like as far as uh, education in this country or, or around the world is. But I mean, for me, it was really just about being in a place surrounded by a lot of really interesting creative people and just having the the time and space to explore creative work. That's almost exactly what I would say, too. It's also funny that, like, this is... So a big part of our shared history, but we've never actually talked about it t- together. We, we lived it together, but like we've never talked about it in this kind of meta way. But but to me, that's exactly what art school was too, right? Like in my high school, I was one of the arty kids, which really just meant I could draw, right? Because I went to some public high school where there was minimal art programs and the idea of art was just basically drawing and painting. Do you, do you know how to make a picture look like an apple? And if you do, then you're an artist. And I would always get sucked down these rabbit holes of like weird creative projects and it would kind of be all consuming to me. And I remember the first couple of weeks at art school, I was like, wait a minute, everybody here is getting consumed by weird creative projects and getting sucked down rabbit holes. Everybody has their own little thing they're like weirdly entangled with. And that was, that was what art school was. It was like, now you're surrounded by people that are certainly caught up in these kind of creative projects and in- interested in exploring them and making creative work. Today, where I find that same culture is through magic, through cube design. I, I, I feel like the, the closest thing I have today to the kind of culture that I had at art school is talking to people in various Discord servers, on Twitter or whatever, about the cubes they're designing and the creative projects they're in. It's like people that are working on their own thing, they're extremely interested in and sort of entrenched in it, and it's like a, a fun experience to talk to people that are really into whatever it is they're doing. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I, I, I think that a big difference is just that there's sort of this shift in expectations. Like, we still, to a large degree, do creative stuff for our day jobs, but it doesn't have the same texture of just, well, we can really focus on that little piece that interests us and just dive into that, which, I mean, so much about what this podcast is, so much about Lucky Paper, the website, this has sort of been, honestly, the most fun I've had since art school, because we really get the time to say, like, I want to work on this data visualization project and dive into it and explore all this nuance and change my mind and explore a different aspect of it if if something isn't really appealing to me anymore, which even for the people that we went to school with doesn't know is we don't get to have that freedom anymore when it's like, well, yeah, I'm working on this project for this person. It has to be finished on this date and it needs to do ABC. And yeah, that applies both to cube design itself as a creative effort and also to all of the wonderful stuff that we get to do around cube design. Yeah, that's that's probably a little bit of a different discussion, but certainly there is... Um... There's truth to the statement that once you make something your job, it's 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 not going to be quite as fun as, as it once was. And that's true for the kind of creative work that we studied in school and then ended up doing for our careers, too. Like, it's just always in a different context when you make it your job, right? And it's hard for it to be as creatively satisfying. One of the things I think people that did not go to art school have a hard time understanding about art school is that art is notoriously and fundamentally subjective. Like, what is good art? What is bad art? It's this thing that I think for a lot I of people... I thought that was pretty pretty well established in kind of what you learn freshman year. What do you mean? <laughs> that was a joke. Oh, like, they, like all right, day one, mm-hmm. art 101, yeah. here's day, how to make day, good day art, here's how to make Day one, here is a good art, here is a bad art. Yeah. 
<laughs> but I mean, no, art, art is, I mean, first of all, art is a huge word, right? Like the number of things that can be considered art, that people can do and, and will do at art school is incredibly vast, much more vast, I have to imagine, than somebody studying biology, right? Like what biology is, is a pretty well-defined thing. What art is could be so many things. You picked a, you picked a weird comparison, but... I, I, don't, I don't know what normal things people study. Uh, economics, is that a better comparison? I'm terrified to piss off economists or biologists. <laughs> I'm not trying to piss off anybody. I think it's, here's the thing, in more narrow fields that are much more clearly defined than art, which is this extremely broad, expansive thing, uh, it's, it's a gift. It's much easier to actually teach it and learn it because you have so much more shared context from the start, right? You like, you, you, you're starting from a certain place with everybody else that's studying it, which allows you to, to talk about things. And I think a lot of people, I'll just put it plainly. I think a lot of people think art school is bullshit. It's like, a, a thing that doesn't make any sense. Why would you pay money to go somewhere to try and ostensibly learn about this sub purely subjective thing, right? Like it's purely subjective. I don't think that's I don't think that's well framed, but there's not nothing to that criticism. No, I mean it, it comes from somewhere, but I, I do think that's the perception that a lot of people have of art school. I mean, again, whether whether they phrase it that way or not, it's like how does one study something entirely subjective? And art is subjective, right? Like there is no definition of good or bad art and there's no way around that. But it's very important to me that that does not mean that there is no good or bad way to study art and to improve. And to me, what the like higher levels of art school were, once you get past the part of like, here's a bunch of people that are similarly interested in creative work and similarly engaged by what they're doing and just being surrounded by them is as a baseline already exciting as compared to like my high school life, the the kind of higher levels of, of art school are about how do you participate in a community and be part of a space where everybody is doing their own thing that's going to be evaluated by their own subjective goals, but you're still getting better at what you're doing. You're figuring out how to improve as an artist, how to how to better express the things that you want to express to your audience, whatever your audience might be. And again, art school is is all the stereotypes, right? Like I had a, I had a class where, you know, people brought in for their drawing assignment like a single charcoal line down the middle of a giant canvas or, you know, somebody went and found some dead animal in a park and, and did, tried to embed it in resin and that was their art project. Like the things that happen in art school are wild. <laughs> They're totally out of the box and it's like it is I think very jarring to come to that space and be like, "Now we're going to critique the person who put a, a big stripe of charcoal down the center of this canvas and that was their two-week drawing assignment where everybody else you know drew some big elaborate still life or whatever and now we're going to talk about charcoal lined down the center of this canvas what you learn in that context uh, is to me directly applicable to especially talking about cube and i think this is almost what separates cube and also edh to to a similar degree from competitive magic because if you're talking about modern or legacy or standard or whatever or even retail limited, like, you know, limited resources, you know, all those conversations are about optimizing your win percentage, pretty much. Like, they, it's how do you get better at this? How do you build a deck for this meta or whatever? If you have two pros that both play a lot of modern and they disagree on something, right? Like what the sideboard should look like for this deck or how powerful a given card is, probably one of them is right and one of them is wrong, right? Like there is a right answer. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe maybe biology or economics is not the easiest comparison, but maybe something like engineering is, where if you're talking about engineering, there is sort of a baked-in objective measure of success. You can say, well, how much does this bridge support? If it supports more, you're doing better. 
or <laughs> maybe if it just stands at all. And and I feel like a lot of constructed formats are similar to that, where there is, again, that inherent baked-in objective measure of success, which is, what is the win percentage of this deck? Or, you know, how does it function in these particular, more specific, nuanced contexts? But there still is an objective measure of success. Right. That is what broader magic discourse looks like. Broader magic discourse is largely about how are we working collectively towards uh, this goal of like making everyone's win percentage better, right? Each individual person is trying to get better, win more, and then share their knowledge about how they've gotten better and won more with other people that are doing the same thing. And that, that to me is an analog for, like you said, studying engineering, some kind of hard science where like you're trying to find the answer. There is an answer. It's really hard to figure out, right? Will you figure it out in your lifetime? Probably not definitively, but you, you are striving towards this objective answer that, some, some truth about the world, and, and that is what your goal is. In art, just like in Cube, and again, EDH is in this weird space because EDH is, except for competitive EDH, not optimized in that way, but it is still a format you're playing with other people, and so it's, it's always kind of contextualized with the presumed context of what a normal pod looks like, and there's all kinds of discussions in EDH world about giving your deck a rating from 0 to 10, or the politics of how to tell people what your deck does when you sit down at the table to try and find a good game. And, and I'm very grateful that in Q, we don't talk yeah, about any I mean, of the, that. The, the goal is not to optimize your win percentage in EDH. It is to collaboratively have a fun game with your friends and yes. express yourself through the deck building. Yes, exactly. So there's some of that over there too, but especially in Cube, we end up, and we've talked about this before, I think because of the broader magic context and what discourse looks like in magic overall we end up inheriting a lot of that same way of talking about magic because that is the way people talk about magic broadly it's how do you optimize your win percentage so we're talking about cube it's very hard if someone you know posts in a discord or something and says what do you think of these two cards the first five responses are almost guaranteed to be which one is more powerful from the person, from the respondents, right? Because that is the easiest question to answer. The easiest question is to say, all right, well, you're asking me to compare ponder and opt, and here's the one I think is more powerful, and here's why. What is underneath that, which is often more useful, is a much deeper conversation about the context where one might prefer opt, where one might prefer ponder, the effects those have, not on the win percentage of the person that drafts those cards, but on the way the environment plays and what their decisions look like and whether they're fun or whether they're interesting to make. And that, to me, is very much like the discourse around art. So, Anthony, art school is largely, you know, a lot of classes in art school boil down to each student is making some kind of work, and that work is oftentimes guided by an assignment of some sort. There's some kind of structure there, but every student is working on their own project, and then the class amounts to getting everyone together for a shared critique of the project in question. And we kind of go around the room, and we, everyone talks about their work, and we critique it, and we're all trying to make each other better. If you were to give somebody who had never been in that context uh, a crash course in criticism, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost, it's just easy to take for granted that critique is a huge, huge part of art school. It's something that we experienced on a daily basis, and a lot of people might just not know what that means at all. And it, it is fundamentally just what you describe. Everybody gets together, somebody puts their piece on the wall, or pulls it up on a screen, or... Uh, you go outside hole and in the ground. Yeah, exactly. You go outside and find the hole <laughs> and they everyone, dug, whatever the art is. Look at this beautiful hole. Uh, ooh, cut that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, we did have... Was, was that the class we had together where somebody's art was a hole in the ground? Or was that a class I had without you? I didn't do a ton of sculpture classes. Although, was... is a hole in the ground drawing? It is now. 
And then everyone just talks about the art. And honestly, freshman year, it's terrible because no one knows how to talk about art in a meaningful and productive way. So really a lot of what art school is about is finding ways to talk about things that are subjective in a way that actually is productive. And what that leads you to is you can't just state your uh, your personal taste, your feelings about it necessarily in a, a way that doesn't provide more context. You really need to get an understanding of what the artist, if we want to call them an artist or cube designer or whatever, is trying to do. And if they say, well, I want to give a person this experience when they approach this work, or I want to communicate this message about this particular part of uh, the news, current events, or uh, this kind of experience that people can have in their life, then you can start to actually make statements that can help improve it. Because once you say, well, I'm trying to communicate this message, and I can say, well, my experience approaching the work was I experienced this other message. Now we can try and have a conversation about what is that dissonance. And you can't just say like, well, your two by four leaning up against the wall is very low effort because that's maybe true, but not very productive. But well, the experience was, I thought it was a two by four (laughs) leaning up against the wall. And you're trying to talk about the ridiculous expense of lumber today, you need to do more to provide context. That's one fallacy that I feel like people fall into a lot in their early years of art school, where people tend to not critique the work, but critique their perceived effort into the work, because they're like, wait a minute, I spent hours working on my project, you just put a two-by-four up against the wall or just drew a line of charcoal down the center of this canvas, that you did you did it bad because you didn't work as hard on it as I did, and that's the thing that's valuable. And of course, that's not the case, right? Like, the work kind of stands on its own, and whether or not it was low effort or high effort doesn't necessarily speak to the quality of the work. I, I have a very vivid memory of one of the more impactful student pieces that I saw during a critique in my time at school. And it was simply, it was during a sculpture class. And sculpture classes, at least at the school we went to, the sculpture department was notoriously known for having some of the most off-the-wall, strange projects that would kind of fall under the bucket of sculpture. And this particular student's project, I cannot remember for the life of me what the assignment was, but the, the resulting project was a video of them as a newborn, not fully newborn, but like a really young baby, and they're just crying in this video. And the video was slowed down to like, I don't know, one-sixteenth of its normal speed, and we watched probably 20 minutes of it as part of the critique in class. So it was just... 20 minutes of a baby crying in very slow motion (laughs) with a very low tone because the pitch had been adjusted by the speed of the video. And that falls squarely in the category of like kind of low effort art school stuff where it's like, you just took a video and slowed it down. Like, how is this art? But I can't describe to you how totally jarring and weird it is to sit in a dark room with, you know, 16 other students and just watch this video of a baby going... It's not not unlike the bloop, actually. Kind of like the the bloop. (laughs) Not unlike the bloop. Just go... And, like, and the weird facial expressions that were slowly changing. Like, it made us all feel weird. And so we had this weird experience together, and we talked about it. And it, like, it was one of the first pieces I saw where I was like, that felt like art. Like, that felt like it put me in a weird headspace that... Nobody else's project put me in a weird headspace, right? We're just kind of walking around the room looking at sculptures, and I'm like, I like that one, I don't like that one. And this one, like, took me out of my context and made me feel strange and weird and different. And so it's like, it's like that's the kind of stuff you have to find a way to talk about, and it's really, really difficult. The reason that 
criticism and critique is so important in art school is because it is a subjective field and we lack any objective measure. If you go to engineering school, no one sits around and talks about the impacts of your bridge. You just run your bridge through the math program and it tells you if your bridge is good or bad and you get a grade, right? And so uh, it's- I'm sure it's a little more nuanced than that, but nobody's saying like, well, does this bridge really need to stand up? Isn't it nice if we have some bridges that are just sort of more ephemeral? Right, exactly. Which, now that I say that. This entire culture is built up to, to replace any other kind of objective measure of the art, right? If there was a way to teach art to people without all of this bending over backwards and talking about work for hours and hours and hours on end, then people would probably teach art that way. But you just, you can't because these things can't be simplified down that way. And I mean, the other thing we should mention is that studio classes in art school are six hours long. Like all of our studio classes for the you know four years we were at school were six hours because it takes a long time to make work and then talk about work for 10 to 15 people back to back. And so they're really involved things. It's not like, you know, you come to your 45 minute long lecture, go home and do your homework and then you're done. I kind of teed you up asking you, Anthony, what you, what you would give people as a as a crash course to criticism. I, I did this exercise. I, I've taught a couple courses in, in art school. I, I My major was in graphic design. I've taught some graphic design courses. And one of the things I did in one of the graphic design one courses I taught was explicitly type up guiding principles for criticism of work. And I thought it'd be interesting to revisit these. I mean, I wrote this in 2013, I can see here. So this was this is now nine years old. But I'm interested to maybe revisit these kind of simple suggestions I had for people that were criticizing GD1 work and see how maybe they apply to magic. And the first one is basically the thing you mentioned. So my very first point here is only offer criticism in the context of the project's intent. Do not give critique without first asking questions about the goal of the piece. Especially true of art. I think a little bit less true, but still very true of talking about people's cubes or EDH decks. You can't look at a list and just say, hey, you should be playing this card without asking the designer what their goals are. And maybe if there's a reason they're not playing that card, other than they just haven't heard of it. Yeah, I mean, like the perfect example of that is somebody can jump in and say like, well, I don't like this color. And then if you actually ask them, you're saying, well, I'm actually, this particular design project is focused on a particular minority in this area of town with this ethnic background where that color actually has specific meaning. And if you don't have that context, you'll end up just sort of making these blanket statements that just either are to your personal taste or applying to a context that isn't relevant. Absolutely. But my next point here is that if you don't know the project's intent, any criticism should be stated in the context of an assumed intent. So the example I give here is if you're talking about a newspaper, you can assume that the goal of the newspaper is to make it so that the articles can be read. And and with that assumed context stated, you can provide criticism of why certain decisions make the newspaper not readable. But you should always say, assuming the content of, of this newspaper is to be read, the font size here is too small, the line height isn't breathable enough or whatever. I think that applies to Cube too. You know, it, it can be a lot oftentimes to ask everybody that are having conversations in discords or servers or whatever to always ask for the intent of the designer behind something. And I think you can, if you want to assume a context, like assuming you're trying to play you know, the most powerful options at two mana or whatever. Uh, I think just even stating that goes a long way to uh, to help encourage productive conversation. If you're like, you know, assuming you're trying to have a really powerful spells matter archetype, I think including more one mana cantrips would be good in that regard or whatever. Just stating that's, that, yeah, stating that so context true. is, is and really I, I love the, the color example because it's like, ubiquitous and fairly concrete and if you state your feedback in terms of well i don't think the use of red here makes sense because it is associated with stop and 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 errors and negativity and then somebody who is receiving that feedback but has that context can know when they can dismiss that feedback because they can say well this is uh for uh, an eastern audience where that color just does not have that same meaning right 
My next point here is objective observations, like how the work looks, makes you feel, differs from other similar work, are just as valuable as critique without context. So this, I think, is an important point. And this is actually the number one tip I would give to students that were struggling with a session of critique, like if everyone's just sitting there quietly not doing anything, I would often just call on a student and say, all right, just describe this piece. Describe it out loud as best you can. Because those descriptions, like we all have biases in the way we see the world and we all kind of are tuned into different kinds of things. And so me looking at a cube and saying like, well, looking at this cube, I see there's a, a lot of green five and six drops, or I see there's a lot of ways to bounce creatures back to your back back to their opposing player's hand, or I see a lot of two for ones here, or I see almost no two for ones. Those kinds of observations about what is practically in front of you, what the actual work represents, don't need context because you're just making an observation that may be really helpful for that person that designed the cube to hear because they might not have seen that. They might not have thought about it that way. And so you describing things out loud, just describing what you see, can oftentimes kind of unlock something where the person listening is listening in the context of their goals and what you're stating is not related to a goal. It's just an objective fact about what's in front of you. And so those kinds of objective observations may not seem like a form of criticism, but they are definitely a part of a critical discourse where you just have a, a culture of talking about what you see, what's around you. I notice there's no grave hate in this cube, or there's no way to exile cards from the graveyard, or there's very few ways to do it, or it's only in these colors, or I notice that the this color has way more creatures than this other color. Like I'm making kind of dumb examples here, but I do think those kinds of observations are useful without that context and maybe can be an easier entry point into critical discourse without the the weight of having to understand the intent of the project. I think I implied a little bit that this wasn't valuable. Uh, so tell me if I'm wrong, but I think, I think the context in which this is valuable is criticism can also be sort of very hard to latch onto and get started and figure out where is... What you know? What's the starting point for the conversation? So, it can be just a great way to get the ball rolling and start sort of doing some observation and find aspects that are unique or interesting or or just visible, so that we can begin the conversation. Yeah, that's true. It's I... it's, it's not about just having a, a good critique. Is not just a circle of people all shouting out facts. No, but it it does lead to very interesting places, right? And right. It, specifically in graphic design work, right? There is this seemingly very obvious fact of graphic design or any kind of really visual art that oftentimes is easy to miss when you're working on it, which is just that the things that are biggest and most prominent are the things that are going to be noticed first. And so a lot of people, especially you know young graphic design students that are relatively new, will make a big piece that's supposed to be about something. And then when some other person is asked to describe it, the way they describe it, it doesn't actually touch on any of the things that piece was supposed to be about. Like they describe like, yeah, I see a big bird in the middle of the composition and it's got big typography around it and it's got all these things and nowhere do they actually touch on the thing that the person's goal was, right? And so that's why it's useful in that context. This is maybe less useful in the context of cube, but I, I do think it is dis worth distinguishing saying something like, you know, this blue section seems bad or uh, underperforming or uh, like something's not supported versus saying like, I see that there are lots of things here that represent this kind of archetype or I don't see this kind of archetype present. I think those kinds of observations can still be useful without the weight of that context. True, and it sort of pushes the conversation towards, you know, well, that's a feature you're noticing, it's visible, but that's not something intended, or it doesn't actually support anything that, that is otherwise in this context. Right. I mean, an example of this could be that, like, 
you could be playing a cube where you have included some cards that some player might look at and be like, ah, oh, I see there's a cycling archetype here. And it's like, actually, no, not a cycling archetype. I actually just really think Archfiend of Ifnir and Boon of the Wishgiver and Curator of Mysteries are just good cards. It's not a cycling archetype. I just think they're good on their own, right? And so hearing players look at your cube and say, like, your cycling archetype only has a few cards, that's a relevant thing. Because you're like, oh, actually, I didn't... I don't mean to be communicating with a cycling archetype, right? Like, that's not one of the things I'm going for. And so I think it can be useful in that context. Yeah, that makes sense. This one, probably not as relevant to Q, but uh, the next tip is talk about the work as it is, not the person who made it or the circumstances surrounding the piece's creation. This comes up more at art school because you have people that are like, I know you started this last night and you know you didn't put enough effort into this or you didn't work as hard on it as you should have. Because I know you didn't stare at that paper for 17 hours before drawing the perfect straight charcoal line. Right, and in the context of a graphic design one course, you know everybody's got the same assignments and the same amount of time to work on them, and so there's naturally a little bit more comparing yourself to others than would be healthy. And so oftentimes that kind of devolves into a... I wish you had worked harder on this as a, as a piece of critical feedback, which is not at all helpful. I don't think this really comes up in Cube much, though I can imagine maybe if somebody has a reputation for really liking cantrips or really liking, uh, you know, big green ramp strategies that you might look at their Cube in a different light because you are projecting this value proposition because you know the creators, you know something about the creator. And whenever that kind of creeps up, I would say that it's always more beneficial just to actually look at the cube of the cards in question and not not kind of map what you perceive to be values of the creator onto them, absent them actually expressing those values. Yeah, and I think in the world of cube design, we're actually very fortunate that this isn't an issue because it's a little bit more objective than a lot of art or other creative processes because there is some kind of a goal, which is we all want to have a fun play experience in the end. And even if you do something... Let's be honest, it's, it's, you can do a pretty low effort cube and just be like, yeah, I just went on Scryfall, search cycling, and copy-pasted the list. I mean, but if we can all or you could just put, say. you could just put 70,000 copies of Hidden Gibbons in a cube and call it a cube. I mean, that's kind of the equivalent of putting a single charcoal line down the middle of a canvas. <laughs> but how long did it take to collect all those Hidden Gibbons? I don't think that's actually a low effort cube at all. <laughs> From talking to Cactus, I think it took a long time because it, she kept crashing the I think it is an ongoing. Page. I think it is so... a project that involves more dedication than I will ever show to any project. But I think that in the end, it's very easy for us because we all are players of the game for the most part to stop and say like, well, it doesn't really matter how much effort went into this. Let's talk about what kind of play experiences we can have. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that we have as much of an issue with that in the cube design world as perhaps we do in a graphic design one classroom. The next one is actually kind of similar. It's uh, just that good criticism comes from a place of love and mutual desire to improve ourselves in our work. So don't take it personally. And... You know, I don't think people take cube criticism personally much. And certainly if people are, you should try not to. And you should also try and not give any kind of criticism in a personal context. It's not a reflection of the person who made the cube. It's just about the magic cards. I mean, this was that was maybe one of the hardest things to, not necessarily to learn, because it's very easy to tell someone, don't take the criticism perso- personally, try to improve, take that information for what it's worth. And if it doesn't, if you don't think it applies usefully, you can ignore it. That's very easy to say. It's very hard to intuit that and and to sort of develop a thick skin that you can say like, yep, I'm just going to take all of this feedback, whether it's positive or negative, and, and treat this as like a valuable resource, as a tool that I can use to improve, but not to let it affect me personally. I think that does come up fairly often, that if yeah. someone says, well, this cube is 
crap, that's going to be hard. Yeah, well, now that you're saying it, I think maybe it doesn't come up so often in the context of, like, one cube designer to another cube designer, but I think it does totally come up in the context of players of a cube talking about the cube they're playing to the cube designer, where someone will say, like, well, you know, this color it seems bad, so I'm not going to draft it. And it's very hard as the cube designer not to be like, you're saying I did a bad job of designing that color, when in actuality you have to recognize that the nature of designing a cube is that you're going to design it in a certain way, and every player is going to have their own perceptions of what is good and bad, and that's the beauty of, totally. the, of the cube. If everybody felt everything was completely equally viable, like magic and cube wouldn't be that much fun. There would be no, no tension, no, no disagreement. So I, I think maybe that does come up in that context where it's like, don't even take a, a player of your cube saying that they think a color is bad or this, this deck is not that great as a criticism of you or the cube. Just take it as a data point of like, yeah, that's, an, yeah. that's a valuable thing for me to know, that... A player perceives this thing this way, add it to my list of information I can use to inform my future decisions in any way I want. I can digest that information however I choose to. Yeah, you just you just add one in the uh, someone hates blue column and, and move on. And if enough ticks end up in that box, then maybe you come back and revisit it. This next one I think is very relevant. Uh, this next tip is talk about whether or not specific decisions are successful or unsuccessful in achieving the desired outcome. Try to avoid personal taste, i.e. I like it or I don't like it, or value judgments. This is good or this is bad wherever possible. This is really important when you're talking about subjective work, right? And it's very... Yeah, I mean, this is the perfect flip side of just, you know, providing context and pointing to the actual goals of the work. Right. It's, it's very hard. It's, it's not intuitive, I don't think, really. Like, when you sit down for a graphic design critique, a lot of graphic design one students' first inclinations is to be like, all right, how many people in the room like the work that I made? And how many people don't like it? And that's a measure of my success as a graphic designer on this project. And it is not. It does not matter if everyone in the room hates your work. It can still be incredibly effective at achieving the goal you set out to achieve. And that's true, you know, both ways. So it's very hard to, like get in the habit of both hearing your work talked about in a way that is detached from like or dislike, because in the world at large, that is pretty much the only way people interact with subjective art is whether they like it or not. That like nobody's doing art criticism on the on street corners or, you know, in in, in common day-to-day conversation. They're just talking about their subjective tastes. And then it's also very hard, I think, to as a person giving feedback, if you're looking at something you really don't like, right? Let's say this is a piece that is trying to make me uncomfortable. That is, maybe it's a piece that's even espousing an ideology that I vehemently disagree with, right? It's an advertisement for a butcher shop and I'm a vegan, right? <laughs> like, there's all kinds of places where you'd be like, I don't like this. This is not for me at all. It does not meet any of my subjective tastes. But can you still, as that vegan graphic design student, talk about the success of this poster or advertisement for the butcher shop, right? And that's a hard skill to learn, and I think it's very, very relevant in cube design. There's a lot of cubes that I talk about with people online that I frankly don't even really want to play that much, not that interested in, would never build myself, and trying to come at that from a perspective of this, the whole point of this conversation, the reason we're talking about cube with each other, the reason we have a podcast, the reason we are on Discord, the reason we're on Reddit and, and Twitter, the reason we do this at all is because talking about this work and, and, the, and cubes and magic in this way is valuable to us, right? And in order to make this experience valuable, it's really important that you divorce yourself as much as possible from totally subjective bias because no one has benefited from you barging in and saying, well, I'm a vegan, so I don't like this butcher shop poster. It's like, great, cool. Glad you're doing your thing. That's not actually going to move the ball forward for anybody at all. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a different agenda there, but in terms of the specific work of the butcher shop poster, that's for sure. 
Right, yeah, if we want to get into an ethics conversation about whether or not you should be a vegan or not, we, we can definitely do that. But, but when we're talking about, you know, your client is the butcher shop, your job is to sell some cuts of beef, then there's, there's goals that can be achieved there. And anybody, regardless of their subjective tastes about the subject matter, the piece itself. I mean, even another more like tame example is you might just have a distaste for a certain type of font, right? You might just really not like black letter typography. And if someone's designing a, a metal poster, there's a good reason to use black letter typography. It's a part of the culture of that, that genre of music. And so you should be able, as somebody that subjectively doesn't like black letter type and fonts, to still talk about the objective success of achieving a goal in a, in a given sort of assignment. And... I'm giving graphic design examples here because that's what this course was for and that's what I studied most of, but this is also entirely true of every other kind of art, right? And some other kinds of art have more craft to them. Like if you're talking about throwing something on a pottery wheel, there's a lot of actual technical craft to be talked about. Like, did you have air bubbles in your in your piece? Are the walls consistently thick throughout? There's, there's actual craft to be addressed there, and that's true in graphic design as well. But then beyond that, there's the actual expression of the work. You can talk about whether or not this painting made you feel a certain way that the art, the artist wanted you to feel or whether it took you to a place that the artist wanted you to go those are the goals that we have to always keep in mind when we're giving feedback on work and try and just avoid statements of taste because they're not really particularly relevant and i think that criticism is so awesome like obviously it sounds like a negative thing but that style of discourse where you are providing valuable context for why things are successful or not successful is super enriching, even if you're not talking about the thing that you're working on or a specific subject matter that you're interested in. So, I mean, just going back to this multiplayer cube, I don't enjoy multiplayer magic as much as I enjoy one-on-one magic, but by talking about like, well, why is the Akron War effective in this context? How is it different in this context? How is it successful or unsuccessful at accomplishing these specific goals? Just gives me a a different way of thinking about it that's absolutely going to enrich the way that I think about the card and think about other cards that have similarities with it. So I I just, that's why I love cube design to to such a large degree. Yeah. And that's a really important point, right? Like learning to talk about and critique other work that is not the work you made, I think does make you better as an artist. It, It gives you another perspective and another tool. And I think the exact same thing is true, like you mentioned here, of talking about other cubes and hearing from other cube designers what their goals are and how they accomplished them and what their experiences were. That is further context and texture to apply to your own future cube designs, right? This, this next point is, is very related. My next tip here for my Graphic Design 1 students is saying, I would have done or I would try is not appropriate criticism. Recognize that what you would do given the same problem is not relevant or helpful feedback. This is a very common thing for people to do. It's especially in a context where everyone's given the same assignment, right? And everyone's working in a similar medium and with a similar skill set. It's very hard as somebody that has the skills to solve a problem, to look at a problem and say, well, this is how I would solve it because that's just very natural for you as the, as the person with those skills. But importantly, it's not your project. It's not your context. It's not your, you're not the person actually solving this, this problem. And so what you would do in that context is oftentimes not helpful, right? And it's oftentimes the thing that comes to your head most immediately, but it it rarely is the thing as the person is actually looking for. I fall prey to all of these traps, right? Like I, I do this stuff all the time. I try not to, I'm, I try to be aware of it, but like just today in the Discord, I was talking with Avalanche Master. I'm not sure if you're a listener Avalanche, but if you are, shout outs, who was asking about Bygone Bishop and people's thoughts on Bygone Bishop in, in the context of, of his cube. And 
basically mentioned that he was trying to take his Boros in a kind of artifacty direction. And I immediately was like, ooh, yeah, Boros artifacts. Now that we have all these cool new cards from Strixhaven, you could do a pretty cool aggro thing with Master Trinketeer and uh, Inventor's Apprentice and that other one drop I can't remember the name of that is from Kaladesh that gets bigger based on artifacts and gets first strike eventually. I was like thinking about all these kind of aggro strategies and just kind of talking out loud about like, oh, this is what I would do if I was trying to make, you know, Boros artifacts a thing. And then he was just like, actually, no, I'm doing like an eggs thing. Like, it's not really aggressive at all. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, everything I just said was not helpful, right? And so I was just talking into the void, but not really actually helping Avalanche achieve their goal, which was trying to make this more eggsy, mid-range, combo-style Boros deck happen instead of a proactive, aggressive Boros Artifacts deck. So it's easy trap to fall into. That's, that's interesting. I definitely find myself in that talking from that perspective a lot. But what I mean is I just want to qualify it and say, this is not objectively correct. This is just my own approach. But maybe that's not the best way to phrase that. Because, I mean, if we took it to the extreme, if someone's saying, like, well, do you have any advice on my cube? I would say, well, yes, I've spent a lot of time designing a cube, and you should do it exactly like this. Right. Just replace these 360 cards with these. Exactly. I mean, in a, in a, in a whole vacuum, like, what's your advice on cube? It's like, well, I'll build, build mine. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been working on it for years, and I think it's fun. So uh, that's what I think everyone should do. The next one I think is also important and has interesting corollaries to magic, and it's just that people should cite precedents and similar work often. And this is really just about being informed by history. You know, there's obviously lots of reasons to study history in the liberal arts in general, but I think it's especially interesting in art history where you are in art school, you're making your own work, and every art program I'm aware of also has you simultaneously studying art history to learn about work that was made prior to the work you're making today. That's so important in the context of just understanding your place in history as an artist and understanding the past and the context that other artists were in. And in magic, to me, this is about using the history of magic and constructed magic and decks that were successful in type two and extended and in successful in modern seven years ago or whatever, and just knowing what these kind of decks were like and being able to cite them or, you know, being able to take advantage of other people knowing and citing them to say, like, you're trying to do this thing with your cube. There's actually, you know, a, a deck from Standard six years ago that uh, employed similar cards to, to, to great effect. Let's look at that list and figure out, you know, why it was successful and maybe we can apply those lessons here. I think there's a lot that can be learned from pretty much any chapter of Magic's history to inform cube design. And I think being able to cite that work is, is a great advantage. And it's not something everyone needs to do. Like, I, I don't think it's like everyone has to go out and actually like start studying old uh, standard deck lists or whatever. But I'm always very grateful when I when someone else does point me to like a list where it's like, actually, I was playing eight years ago and in the standard environment, this was a weird like off-meta deck that had this strategy or employed this card. And uh, it's it can definitely inform things in, when it comes to cube design, I think. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of telling me that that context is also... Or- Obviously, that context is all super valuable just to, to talk about the history of design and what are sort of the, the thought technologies that we can rely on. But it, it even also has a lot to do with, similar to being an artist and understanding the context and the history that your viewers know, you want to understand the context that your, your players are going to understand and expect. Absolutely. The other example I can give of this is that when I was working up the Degenerate Microcube, you know, my, my main cube is of this kind of power-motivated, you know, lightning bolt counterspell cube that we've been talking about so much, where it's, you know, at the at the kind of peak of power level, minus the things I think are too good that make games warping. And I think in a lot of ways, those kind of cube environments emulate 
modern standard kind of or like you know they make the, the gameplay patterns don't feel that far off from a standard deck or a modern deck or a sort of constructed deck in a currently played constructed format but when i was making the degenerate micro cube i'd never played vintage and i was trying to inform the design of that cube from vintage and so i went back and looked at tons of deck lists i pulled up tons of vintage deck lists on mtg top eight i went and watched vintage matches on youtube i had them on in the background while i was working or tinkering with the cube just so i could hear some matches be played and pop in at specific moments and understand the meta a little bit and so i, I do think that historical reference can be very valuable and just like art history uh, makes sense to art magic history makes sense to cube designers <laughs> These, um, these last couple things here are a little more practical. I don't think they're as useful to read. They're kind of repeating things we've already talked about. But but yeah, this is these are all the sort of things that I thought were useful for young art students that were trying to get their sort of footing in criticism. And I, I still feel like I am guided by these kinds of principles in talking about magic of all kinds. The thing that we touched on that is really important to me is that there's a reason to go to art school, right? It's not, well, I mean, the reason is that it's really fun, but it's also that studying art is valuable. It makes you more adept as an artist at expressing the things you want to express, at making work that is successful in serving whatever goals you want to serve. And that involves a combination of improving your technical skill and your craft, and also a better understanding of how your work interfaces with the outside world, interfaces with your viewers, how it's understood, how it's perceived, and all those conversations, all those critiques that you take part in, you know, during these six-hour classes and four years of art school, you do it for a reason. And I feel the same way about everything we do talking about Cube, right? I don't think that this podcast is just about us talking about people's hobbies because it's fun and people want to listen, people talk about magic, and they just want to think about magic more. I don't think that the reason people are in these Discord servers talking about things all day is just because it's to kill time or whatever. Like, I think there is a profound life-affirming benefit to growing as a, as in the way you understand this game that we all love. I, I just, I really want to make the case for taking the discourse somewhat seriously. And I, I don't mean to take it, me take it seriously. Like I want to throw cold water in everybody's party and pop in like the, the tone police and tell people to, Hey, stop, uh, you know, giving feedback without context or, you know, do things a certain way. But there's lots of little enclaves of cube discussion and every little enclave has its own culture for what kind of discourse is or is not accepted and how people talk about things. And the ones that uh, I really get the most out of are the ones where there is this shared understanding that we're talking about this subjective work. And the way to do that is to talk about it in context and do all the things we talked about in this episode. And so I don't know what the point of this episode is other than maybe to give people some context for where we're coming from on this show and maybe to maybe to shine a light more concretely on things that have been quietly present in conversations about cube design. You know, maybe you've been doing this already, but you didn't know you were doing it. You didn't have a word to describe the kinds of things you were doing and what, what the nature of feedback you were giving was. I, I'm, I'm blabbering now, Anthony. You got to save me. Come on, save me. I mean, the, the nugget that I would want to underscore is just this comparison to the fact that so many ways to play magic are very much like engineering and we can point to concrete res concrete goals and concrete results to measure our success and and cube is super unique in that it is the way to play magic that is not like that and it's as much as the the engineering is still there there's still the craft that's important and understanding uh what goes into a game of magic is an still an extremely important part to understanding it and making a successful 
creative work, it is something fundamentally different. And if we appreciate that, then it actually just makes conversations about it a lot more fun. And ultimately, yeah, yeah, it is a hobby. We're here to have fun. I totally agree. Like, it sounds um, sort of oppressive to say, like, let's take it more seriously. We have to do it this right way. But but that really does just make it so much more fun when you're like, yeah, everybody who's talking about this, everybody who's in this conversation is taking it seriously and cares and wants to do their best to improve everyone else and 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 lift ourselves up as uh, people that love magic in this most unique and most high effort way. Yeah, it's it's very try hard. But that like I hear some pros like, you know, I think LSV was on an episode of uh, Drive to Work. Uh, with with Mark Rosewater and the, the question Mark asked him which is how did you get into magic and it's a story that a lot of pros tell where it's like yeah I discovered the game thought it was kind of cool and then you know I, I thought I was pretty good at it and I just wanted to win like I was just totally driven by competition I'm so competitive that I just sunk my life into this game because I just wanted to to demonstrate my skill and be like incredibly good like the true deep spike mentality and I like games a lot. Deep Spike. <laughs> Deep Spike. I, I like games a lot. I'm quite competitive, but that is not my relationship to the game. It's not like I discovered magic and I immediately just wanted to become the best at it imaginable, right? Like, I don't I don't want to grind uh, limited on Arena for five hours, which is what I would do if I just wanted to get really, 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 really good at playing magic. What I love about the game is that it is a framework for us to have all of these creative conversations and we can go just as deep and in many ways much, much deeper while being untethered from just strictly conversations of how do you win, right? We, 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 we can go a little bit deeper and, and, more, and more wide and talk about other things. Anybody that loves talking about cube design, most of us of this podcast, I think would love art school, Anthony. I think they would fit in very well at art most, school. Most people would love art school. But your, your point, I think, really also just highlights why why we approach the game in a certain way. You know, when we started playing, we were playing kitchen table decks, and it was really exciting to say, like, well, I opened up this new card, and this opens up a new, I- new idea for a deck that I can power up with this. And then when you, we started interacting with people that played a little bit more seriously, and they're like, oh, why are you doing this? Here's, just go online, get the correct deck list, and you'll win so much more. That immediately just turned me off, and I was like, oh, like, no, that's not my goal. My goal isn't to win the most. The goal is this journey of discovery and exploring the game. And and that's why, honestly, that's why Commander was so appealing, and then why Limited was so appealing, and now Cube has been all-consuming. I couldn't have said it better myself, Anthony, so I won't say anything else. That's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you to DJ James Nasty for producing all of our music. Thank you to Wizards of the Coast for making all the magic cards. Thanks to you for listening, and thank you, Anthony, for talking about magic with me. Hey, thanks for talking about magic with me, Andy.